really when we're getting into GI health, we're thinking of our body is, you know, not only just our microbiome, our bacteria, but also it's a detox system kind of assisting and working along with our liver. All right. Austin Stout, man, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. This is a uh, this is going to be a cool conversation because one, I'm not extremely familiar with your content, and it's funny, you know, I've done. I mean, we're on episode 900 something now, so I've I've been doing podcasts for quite a while. It's kind of my thing now. And uh, one thing a lot of people talk about is they do so much research on the guests before they come on. And I've actually found that if I haven't already done so naturally, sometimes I enjoy like just skimming briefly so I can learn what they're experts in. And then I can really like be a fly on the wall and like pick your brain and ask you questions and get you to like, because if, if I already know what you're going to say, it, it kind of defeats my curiosity. Right. So I'm very excited about this because I'm very curious about how you're going to dive into a lot of these topics. And it's also a topic that we haven't covered uh, in, in much depth on the podcast, especially in, in regards to body composition and physique development. So I'm excited to dive into gut health with you, man. Um, for the listeners who don't know who you are, can you share who you are and uh, maybe some of your credentials or experience and, and why you do what you do today? Sure. So uh, I have a, my entry into the space was probably pretty similar to a lot of people in the sense that I had like a bit of an athletic background. I was a wrestler in high school. I found that I found that as I dove into that, obviously a weight management sport, right? Wrestling, fighting, things like that most of the information that I found pertaining to nutrition and weight training seem to all be derived from bodybuilding publications. So I'm like, all right, well, these guys know something, right? Yeah. So that got me interested in that space. So I kind of, I kind of got into that style of hypertrophy training and performance training and even dialing in my nutrition. I was that weird kid in high school that like portioned his food and I was like on a meal plan and doing all this stuff. Right. So I, I enjoyed it, uh, probably from probably quenching my competitive thirst. So after I was finished with that wrestling career, I actually just went right into bodybuilding and I did my first bodybuilding competition as a teen in the teen division. Right. So I have been competitively, I've been competing since 19. I'm now 33 and I've been bodybuilding esque in terms of like following that type of uh, routine for probably 16 years, roughly. So a lot of competitive experience got into started in, you know, started at university, started in college, had interest in doing health sciences, you know, dabbled with like the idea of physical therapy and stuff. I even was really interested in majoring in psychology, but didn't want to go to school for eight years for a degree that was, or, you know, like a career that was pretty tough to be, to make a good living in. So long story short, I, I started most of my prereqs, health sciences, things like that. And I, I decided that nutrition is what I wanted to major in just because I was already doing some like personal training on the side. I had that, that going on. And I found that there was a need for nutrition, right? Like this is the gap in the results. I was already bodybuilding. I knew why people weren't getting results. I was already competing. Keep in mind, this is about 2010, 2009. Instagram was like, had not started or had just came about. So that's give you like a ref time reference. So my coaching was already kind of starting there. 
people were wanting to pay me for nutrition advice. I'm like, this is cool, <laughs> right? I'm a kid. I don't have any money. Like, let's go, right? So got into that space that grew by the time I was, by the time I was about, I was doing that part-time as my primary source of income with a few little side gigs from about 19 to 22. At about 22, I took the plunge full-time, 22, 23, I was full-time coaching. And that's all I've ever done. So I've been self-employed my whole adult life. That expanded around to probably around 2015, 2016. I got more interested in the functional space, which was really not a thing yet. You know, of course, there were some functional practitioners, but not in the bodybuilding space so much. You know, you had that like holistic medicine idea of holistic medicine, naturopathic medicine, Mm -hmm. but not really in the, not really so much in the bodybuilding space. But I had had some of my own issues with digestion, low testosterone, you know, competing, things like that. Right. And my doctor in Ohio, uh, Dr. Eric Serrano, which a lot of people have probably heard of, got me interested in that space because he started introducing me to hormones and lab work and, you know, all this stuff. And I was introduced to something called the Dutch test, which a lot of people use now in about 2015. So it was the pamphlet that the reps had brought into his office. And I've told this story a few times because it's a, it's a good story. I had essentially been having, I was burnout, man. You know, I was finishing school full-time course load. I had this full-time business. I was a business owner. I was like doing all this stuff and I was just, I was smoked. It was, and he's like, Austin, I want you to try this test. I'm, I'm starting to utilize it in my patients. So I took it. Everything was crashed. My adrenals were crashed. My hormones were crashed, you know, all this stuff. So I started looking at my, my symptoms and the side effects and the different things I was having. And of course, correlating this to a lot of my clients. And the more that I learned and dove into it, the more that I, I realized that this was such a huge component of why does that, why is this person responding to, you know, calorie deficit and basic, basic calorie math? And like, why is this person not responding to these things? And so I dove into that space more getting into, you know, gastrointestinal health, so on and so forth. And I got fully immersed in this. And this was like, I was still prepping people, but this was everything. You know, I was just couldn't stop learning about this stuff for a good two or three year span. Around 2017 or 18, I had a few people approach me and ask if they would, if I would teach them. Like, I guess, you know, yeah, sure. Right. So they wanted to pay me for education. And at this time I had no, you know, I had no lesson plans. I had no like video segments and none of this stuff. So I kind of just started building, building it out as I went and eventually announced a full-time mentorship service probably about four or five years ago. And it was just a side thing, you know, had maybe five people at a time would run through expanded on my coursework. I started offering some different classes that were offered to the public and then kind of integrating those into my, um, into my mentorship as I went on and it's just grown and expanded and grown and expanded. And I've kind of just become a guy, you know, the guy in that space. And that has, so that's where we are today. My business is about 60% uh, clients. So that could be anyone from functional health clients to, I have, you know, IFBB pros on my roster that I work with um, in various divisions, bodybuilding, female divisions. And then the other probably 40% of my clientele is uh, 
are coaches that I educate on some capacity. So that that's like the cliff notes to get us to 2024, almost where we are now. Yeah. I love it, man. It's uh, there's a lot of similarities actually. So I'm 31. Um, I, one of the reasons I got into nutrition was because I was training people in a big gym and nobody was doing nutrition. And I, uh, prepped for a show with Shelby Starnes back in the day, way back and got absolutely shredded. And I was like, Whoa, just nutrition. I didn't change my training. I was doing the same thing I've, I've been doing cause I'm a trainer. And all of a sudden I manipulate this nutrition and this happens. Why is nobody certified or, or looking into this at this big gym that like all these, you know, became top trainer because I was the only one who did nutrition. I saw that gap. People started wanting to offer me money to coach them. They're like from New York and shit. And I'm like, that's dope. Yeah. I'm a young broke trainer. Let's go. And same exact thing. man. so it's really cool to hear that. Cause I think there's a lot of us who started pre Instagram, social media who are influences in the industry, but it's always refreshing when you see somebody who is a quote unquote influencer or has influence in the space but it's more of a coach and an educator than an influencer, you know, and they are influencing people because they're a coach and an educator, which is why I'm sure your career kind of naturally took the path it does. And I can say that this is similar to me too, but I'm sure you're coaching people and you find yourself teaching and educating your physique clients. Right. And then all of a sudden sure. it becomes like, wow, a lot of my clients are trainers and nutrition coaches. Like a lot of my, you know, and they almost hire you to like, get their shit in check, but also like pick your brain and ask you questions. And then it just kind of spawns into that, which is cool. You know, that's, I mean, that's a really cool thing and it allows you to come on shows like this and, and educate people and, and change space. And I, I definitely think you're filling a gap with the gut health stuff too, because it's a different lens from what I have heard of you speaking on it, which is what we're going to dive into now, man. And I'm excited about this because I think this is something that needs to be uh, really cleared up. And so the first thing I kind of want to ask is going in like uh, kind of a sequence of somebody comes on board and we're trying to essentially identify, uh, assess and apply something to help them get through this issue. Right. And I think that with gut health, and this is what I would love for us to deliver as far as value to the, to the listener. I think with gut health, there's a lot of, uh, uh, just misinformation. There's so much out there and there's so many different types of things that could be diseases or symptoms or um, issues. And people result to different things of like, Oh, I think I have this. And you have no idea if you have that, you've never done a test. You don't even know what that is and you don't know how to address it. Like, so I want to clear a lot of that up. And there's some people who ignore the symptoms and they have something really bad going on, whether they know it or not. And that's holding them back. And there's other people who are like hypochondriacs and they're like, this is what I got. Or I have these intolerances. And I'm like, no, you don't. So the first thing is kind of that initial client assessment to really just like figure out, discover the gut issue itself. Like, how are you going about that? Are you making all your clients immediately take tests? Are you going about um, it just from a symptom biofeedback kind of perspective? Like, what is your advice for determining, like, do you have something going on? Yeah, that's a great question. And the reality of the reality of the situation is this is generally when it comes to the point where they are symptomatic enough to reach out to someone for help. Yeah, they have more than one thing going on already. Yeah. Because like you said, they're gonna and this is human nature is we're going to ignore stuff, we're going to put stuff off, we're going to kind of wait until it is a problem. And so realistically, individual comes in and it they do have a GI issue, but they probably have you know, if it's a female, they probably have cycle irregularities or no cycle or a number of issues. Males may have, you know, various issues. So the, the difficult part that I find with, you know, especially like with working with coaches and the mentorship and things is this is, can be kind of overwhelming because if you, if you're getting into the space and you're trying to educate, you're like, I'm going to take a class for SIBO. I'm going to take a class for estrogen dominance and stuff. 
but they have all these things. So what are we to do? Are we going to go in and do a protocol for this, a protocol for this, a protocol for this? And for one, that's not practical. Two, it's not feasible. And three, it doesn't really address the root of the issue. So what I found with GI health is it seems to be in the vast majority of people, the main driver. Okay. And I say that because really when we're getting into GI health, we're thinking of our body is, you know, not only just our microbiome, our bacteria, but also it is a system that is, uh, it's a detox system kind of assisting and working along with our liver, right? So that is exacerbating a lot of these um, hormone metabolism issues and things that we're experiencing. And so that's why a lot of the time that is kind of the root cause that we need to focus on first and foremost um, with individuals that have multiple issues. So to your, to your question there, when you do it long enough, like I have and see enough cases, you can definitely identify patterns and trends that are pretty common with people, you know, like for example, you can identify things like small intestine bacterial overgrowth, usually pretty visually, they stand to the side, their lower GI is very distended when they wake up in the morning. Like these are just like visual patterns that you can see different symptoms that you see because you've done it, you know, 500 times. However, there's the human element becomes difficult because one, you're relying on feedback from people that don't know what's wrong with them and they don't know what to report to you. So even if I give them an intake form or a check-in system, they, they can only give you as much as they know. Right. So it's like, if I were to give every single person a number scale, like on one to 10, how bloated are you? They may say two, but really they're a nine, you know, or how stressed are you? And they give you a one, but it's all subjective, mm-hmm. you know? So in order to, in order to figure out how a, like how severe is this issue? Does it warrant testing? You know, um, is it just like lifestyle derived? Are there more routine things we need to work on? I need to take an accumulation or or look at the totality of everything, right? So if they have blood work already, they have some type of testing already, I'm obviously going to take that into account. Like how long have they had these issues? Also, what happened around the time that these issues started to crop up? Was there, was there like bouts of dieting? Was there contest prep? Was it medication? You know, were they on birth control? Like what, what kind of led us to this point? Because sometimes, you know, sometimes there are pretty obvious cases where, yeah, they do have a GI issue, you know it, but they come in and there's 20 things on here that I have to fix that no matter what protocol I give them, it's not going to make, it's going to maybe symptomatically, it'll help them temporarily. But of course, we're going to end up right at square one again, if we don't fix the, the routine. So every person has some level of lifestyle, that term, you know, like lifestyle adjustment that we have to make. Now I used to, and I still do this to an extent, like if someone has disposable income and they have the budget, there's absolutely nothing wrong with testing because why not? Right. Like if I can get, if I can get some clear answers and I can get a GI map and I can see everything, that's awesome. I think the other benefit to that is it, I find that it helps increase buy-in a lot of the time because I have something I have something also quantitative to show them. I can say like, I know you don't know what this test is, but you see all these red marks on here. This is bad. (laughs) You know, like I can, I can kind of like give a brief explanation as to what that is. And they, so now they can take what I'm saying and they're like, okay, 
that makes a little more sense to me. So the testing is definitely helpful, but the reality is that sometimes resources are limited. So I can't always throw a $400 test at somebody when they walk in the door because they're already paying me for coaching and they have supplementation and all these things. So I'm really looking at what, you know, for one, like what lifestyle changes can we make for the individual? Um, obviously this is boiling down to primarily we, we use this, this term stress all the time because it's just going to be the main driver of everything. My first objective is to build awareness in the client. So when they come in, they fill out the intake. Something that I do with every client is I'm going to give them feedback. I pretty much go right in and point out all the flaws that I see. I am 100% transparent with every person right from the, from the start. It's not an abrasive conversation. It's not me being a jerk about anything. It's just like, this is what I see. This is what's going to hold us back from getting results. Because right now, these um, the idea of GI health or hormonal dysfunction, it's pretty prevalent in the industry. So chances are, if they've come to me for it, they've been on Instagram and YouTube and they've been looking and they've been researching. So they may already have an idea of what they think is wrong with them. So my job is I need to rewire. I need to rewire some stuff and just give them all this information right from the start. Are we on the same page? We are. Awesome. Now, let's start to work on these, you know, let's start to work on these factors. So what I like to do with people is I really like to take maybe the, the first at least six to eight weeks. And this could be longer depending on if they're very adherent and they're on board with me, we can expedite this. But if they're like giving me a lot of pushback, of course, it's going to take a little bit longer. Let's fix as many things in your routine as we can. Let's lower systemic stress. Let's get the routine. Let's maybe diversify your diet a little bit. If you've been eating the same three foods for the past five years, you know, let's talk about these things. How much improvement did we make? All right. Now, what symptoms do we have left? Do we have any symptoms left? Maybe that's it. Maybe we're good. That's all that they need. The body's pretty smart. You know, the body's able to balance these systems out pretty well on its own, but maybe we get through that initial foundational phase, as I may call it, and they still are presenting some pretty evident symptoms. Here's where we definitely, here's where we probably want to test. And I make that known up front and say, hey, this is an expense. Like this is a test that we might want to use. Just be aware that this might be something that I want to use once we get we get in here and we need to dig in a little bit further. So they already know. So we'll run it. This is where we would maybe get into a little more intensive protocol type work to address, you know, whatever is still left over um, that needs to be addressed. So that's, and of course, like every case is going to vary, but that's maybe like a general outlook of what that intake and initial like sequence of events might look like in a client. Yeah. I love that, man. I think it's a good breakdown. And I think that, it is obviously testing and stuff can be expensive, but I think it's, it's uh, like you said, different people perceive things differently, right? So some people might say what their stress is, but is that really their stress level? You know, like certain people will just kind of write it off as like, oh, I handle stress well. And, and I'm guilty of that, right? Um, so it's, it's good to have those numbers if they can afford it. One question I have, two questions, actually. One question, just because I know that we'll get a bunch of listeners asking this and you don't have to explain why for each test, but are there certain tests that you are like, like you said, the Dutch test, like you do you recommend the Dutch test? Are there certain blood 
works that you do uh, or like biome tests that you're like, these are BS. Don't worry about them. Just, we can just list them off and then I can put them in the show notes. That way people know like, Hey, here's a good list to like go with. And, uh, and it eliminates the question that I know is going to come about. Sure. Yeah. Most commonly the things I would stay away from is like food sensitivity testing. Don't bother. Yep. Um, they're using usually like IgG or IgA type of tests. I don't really bother with those. There are a massive amount of microbiome testings right now. I'm usually sticking to the company I generally use is Diagnostic Solutions. That's the GI map. There's a couple other ones. They use, I believe, what it's called PCR technology. It's just the way that they measure things, right, within the the, mm-hmm. the uh, testing results. That's usually what I'm sticking to. There are breath tests that are viable. You can, like for SIBO specifically, breath tests will test the amount of hydrogen and methane gas in your in your breath. That is a viable option as well. Pretty much those two tests are what I'm going to stick to for GI health specifically. I don't really get into, like I said, I don't really get into the food sensitivity testing or some of the, like, I'm trying to think of some of the names of some of them. There's so many of them out there that are microbiome specific. The problem with microbiome testing is difficult is one, we can't test all the bacteria. There are too many different strands. Yeah. So what the, what the, the GI map would do, for example, is when you look at the results, it's going to break down different sections of bacteria, yeast, different like infectious pathogens, um, some different like digestive markers like enzymes and secretory IgA, which is an immune marker. It's giving you the most prominent bacteria that you're going to see in the highest abundance that are the most problematic. And that's why that test is what I generally lean towards most of the time. Cool. Yeah. Um, I kind of, I figured you were going to say that I've, I've often mentioned, I don't know a ton about the GI map compared to somebody like you, but I have often uh, strayed people away from the food sensitivity stuffs at this point. So it's good to hear that stuff. Uh, now, continuing on the the assessment, kind of to wrap up that topic, I'm assuming there's a bit of a difference here, but like there's got to be two types of clients. Like obviously you might experience a lot of people who come to you specifically, like I have gut issues, like I need to you know tackle this. Maybe at the beginning, some people didn't weren't aware of it. And I also know there's a lot of people listening who might have clients who have an underlying gut issue that maybe they're not aware of it. Maybe it's not causing, maybe they do have that like lower abdomen uh, extension that's popping out, right? But they don't have a ton of pain or they don't have a ton of discomfort or they're not sharing the right information with their coach or the coaches and asking the right questions more likely. But um, how do you go about looking at it from that lens? Okay, like I think there's a gut issue here, but this person isn't coming to me for that. They want to lose fat. They want to get jacked. They don't know that there's a gut issue. Is there a different assessment protocol or you just have to be a little bit more assertive and say, Hey, every coach should be asking these questions. This is what we got to do to make sure that we eliminate it. So there's, there's definitely an element of that. And I think that there's difficulties in both types of clients. It is always difficult when a client comes into you for a body composition goal and you're like, yo, you're screwed up, you know, you got to wait because they're like, they're like, well, that's not why I'm here. But I was like, but yeah, there's a reason that you have been, you know, making multiple attempts at calorie deficits and they've been working less and less and less over time. Are you having to do more and more extreme attempts, right? Like there's a reason for that. So that is a difficult conversation. And like you said, a lot of that does boil down to either they just don't know. And I, I understand that. I, I totally get it. Cause why would they? Yeah. That's why I'm here. Yeah. And The second thing is a lot of them have worked with other coaches before. So I'm having to break a lot of preconceived notions that they have about what the process looks like. 
that's a conversation that I have to have up front with people. One of the questions I actually ask in my assessments is about their previous coaching experiences. And I don't ask that because I want dirt on coaches or anything. Like, I don't care. It's not, it's not what it's there for. What it's there for is I want to know, like, what were those coaching experiences like? Were there negatives? Were there issues that you dealt with? So one, I can, I cannot do those things first off. Secondly, it tells me a lot about the client also, because if they've had six coaches in the past two years or past year, Mm -hmm. it leads me to believe there's probably also a client, an issue with the client's side of things as well. Right. Yeah. And I can also find out like, what were those processes like? And like, what, what questions were you asked? And then, so for those types of people, yeah, it, it takes a little bit more assessment with them. I have to ask the questions. I may have to do some measurables, like use a Bristol stool chart. Like what is the consistency of your stools? Like, what does that look like? Do you experience X, Y, Z symptoms? Because they don't pay attention to those things. And I maybe have to explain like, this is what that symptom looks like. So now, you know, and now you can pay attention to it and you can report it. Now, on the other side of that, people that come in that are already wanting that service, those people are, are, are on board, but they can be difficult in their own right because, again, they may have a lot of preconceived notions because they've been on YouTube and they've been on Instagram and they've been on Google and they've been reading everything from every other coach online, which they may have a lot of good ideas already, but I might have to break some of those ideas you know, and, and kind of like start fresh. So with those individuals, that's where I'm coming in and I'm having that initial conversation of, Hey, this is what I see. This is what I propose. I need, I need a blank slate here. We're going to restart from scratch. As long as you're on board with that, I am totally here to help. But if you can't, we're going to have a really, a break. We're going to have a lot of pushback here and that's never a good situation. Yeah. I love that. I, th- I think it's, the biggest thing that I'm, I'm hearing you say, and I'm taking away from it too, is like part of coaching is in-depth assessing, right? At the very beginning. And you need to be comfortable asking those questions, digging things apart and standing your ground to an extent, right? Being an effective communicator 100%. and telling the client. I mean, at the end of the day, I always tell people too, is like, if you go to a doctor and a doctor prescribes you something, you just listen, you don't ask them questions. And they also don't give you a ton of options. Typically they're not like, well, what do you think? Do you want to take this medication or this one? Like, you're there to receive the prescription, right? And so when a client comes to you, it it is typically that way and it should be that way. So the coach should be confident knowing that, but also the client needs to be aware of that when they come in, you have to put that up at the forefront and let them know like, hey, just remember, this is why you're coming to me. So I need you to hear me out and trust me. And, and, and Yeah, it's, um, it's you're, you're 100% right. The difficulty is that they've, they've probably had negative experiences. So they're apprehensive, yeah. you know, they're apprehensive about certain things. And, and I have to, I have to be like, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend the next six months gaining your trust. Yeah. We're going to get that out of the way right now. If we can do that now, we're going to be just fine. But if we're, if we're bashing heads, you know, moving forward, you're going to a waste time and money. We're not going to get anywhere. Everyone's going to get frustrated and you're going to get burnt out. It's not going to be effective process. So mm-hmm. that idea of, that idea of trust and buy-in is something that I want to get right from the beginning. Now, luckily for me, I mean, I definitely still battle that. I definitely still deal with those things, but I have the benefit of being established enough that they're getting a lot of referrals. And I'm like, Hey, go talk to the other 500 people over here. or These coaches I work with or whatever. I'm like, go talk to 
anyone that's worked with me, you can get an idea of what this is all about. And that's totally fine. I'm not going to sit here and have like some lengthy sales call where I'm trying to convince you of my, of my worth. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I have that benefit. Now, not every coach is going to have that benefit because they, they just haven't been around or established that reputation. But, but yeah, that's, that is a huge factor because again, even if, even if you have a client that is used to regimentation, like I have a lot of competitors that do come to me f- to work on GI issues. Okay. They know how to follow a plan. They know how to track. They know how to like, they know how to do all these things and they may follow my plan to the T, but they don't get, they don't really get the full result of it because they're just constantly like low grade pissed off the whole time. <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> they're just like, they're just a little bit, they're just a little bit angry and stressed all the time. And I'm like, you're going to do this anyhow. I know you're going to do it. You're hundred percent regimented. Like, let's just erase all this and let's start fresh. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Like that's the art of coaching, right? Like you, you got to learn how to do it in a delicate manner. I also think too, you know, this is, I often tell people creating content, isn't just about trying to get leads or trying to get engagement. It's also about educating and building that trust. So like you said, when people come on board, they already have buy-in and trust with us because we've put out so much free information that we don't need to convince them. They've already been convinced. That's why they're jumping on board and it makes things a lot easier. But obviously aside from the point, but I know that you've done that well, I've done that well. And it, it does help for all the younger or earlier coaches listening. Like that's a big key for why we create content. But Coming back into the topic at hand, uh, what are the different types of gut issues commonly seen? Like, I'm going to ramble off a few because I think there's just, there's so many that when I like sat there and was thinking about the topic itself and I'm like, well, I mean, there's gut dysbiosis, irritable bowel syndrome, irritable bowel disease, uh, which is uh, UC or Crohn's disease, um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO. Like there's just so many different things. There's food allergies, food sensitivities, food intolerances being talked about. Like there's just so many different things. What are, what is actually proven by research? Um, like I, I believe like uh, maybe it's leaky gut syndrome isn't actually, I don't know if that's actually a thing per se based on research and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Cause I, I don't, I wouldn't actually know. Um, but I've heard that. And I guess my point is there's all these different names. Are some of them actually the same? Are some of them real? Are some of them not backed by science? Like what are you actually finding or looking at that people need to be aware of? Yeah. So if you were to go to, if you were to go to your, a your medical doctor you may get a diagnosis with ibs is like a common diagnosis irritable bowel that's probably about all you're going to get unless you have something so extremely blatant that they actually do some type of testing Mm -hmm. which it's going to have to be pretty bad before they before insurance clears you on that so good luck yeah but that's about all the further you're going to get you might occasionally get you know referrals to like a, a gastro specialist and you may get things like IBD diagnosis, uh, inflammatory bowel. So this can be like Crohn's colitis, things like that. Now I definitely see all of it. I mean, I see a combination of all those things. However, they almost always occur in conjunction with one another. It's not, it's usually not a case where there's just one or the other. There's normally a multitude of, you know, multitude of factors going on. Now, the most common issues that I'm going to see on a regular basis SIBO being one, you mentioned dysbiosis, dysbiosis just being like a irregular ratio of 
commensal or good bacteria to your dysbiotic or bad bacteria, mm. right? They're in, they're in disproportion of one another. So what really happens there is a lot of that bloating comes in because you're having, you're having a, a gas production. So there's hydrogen and methane gas that are produced and they kind of like swell you up, right? So it's like, you're getting that hard, that like really hard bloating type of feeling, even when you're empty, even when you're not eating, it's like an air. It's like someone pumped air into your, your GI tract, right? Your intestinal tract. So that's a pretty common one. Other really common ones would be yeast or fungal overgrowth issues, maybe a little bit less common, but still pretty common. Yeast can be really difficult too, because it's all, it can often be systemic where people will get things like oral thrush in their mouth or yeast on their skin or athlete's foot or, you know, vaginal yeast infections, stuff like that. But a lot of that does stem from the GI tracts. A lot of that, a lot of that grows uh, and starts there. You mentioned leaky gut. So I guess the more technical term that, that we would maybe want to use would be like hyperpermeability, which just essentially just means that the layers that absorb nutrients are kind of stuck open, right? So the hyperpermeability would mean stuff's getting through that really shouldn't be getting through. Mm. So we have a mucosal layer in the GI tract that that essentially will trap things like trap pathogens and neutralize pathogens. This, what commonly happens in almost every single case is that mucosal layer gets broken down. If you have IBD, if you have SIBO, if you have any of number of these things, you almost always have some level of compromised mucosal layer. That's it's just been broken down over time. So there's less protection there now. So stuff's getting through that really shouldn't be getting through. And that's a lot of the time why with GI issues, especially that are chronic, you have systemic symptoms. You have potentially joint pain or you have skin issues or you have brain fog or you have, you know, whatever. These issues are not contained within the GI tract anymore. They have become systemic, mm. right? So that's, and of course, another issue there too, is we do produce some neurochemicals like serotonin, for example, in there. So that gets all screwed up. So now we have, you know, now we have like mood irregularities, depression, things like that. So, you know, permeability, fungus, SIBO, IBD type issues, because you have to assume that every single one of these individuals has some level of inflammation going on, right? The, the unfortunate part of this is one thing leads to another, one system stops the other system from working. And so the reality is that normally when someone comes in that, and has SIBO, they do have inflammation. They do have permeability issues. They do have, you know, they do have fungus. They like have multiple things going on normally. So my next question, and then we, I want to kind of fill the people in on what they should be looking for to determine if they have any of these things. Cause I'm sure honestly, like with each of those aspects or, or issues, we could probably do a full like podcast or section on just each sure. one, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think that really summarizes a lot of them really well. Now, what are the greatest contributing factors that cause these things? You know, cause it, it sounds like based on our conversation, I mean, you've already mentioned um, obviously, you know, contest prep. So like at what degree does contest prep, is it just the severity of a deficit or, or is it the supplements or the drugs or the, uh, the length and duration, the stress um, are there specific foods for certain people? Is there just training overload? Like obviously birth control, you mentioned too stress you mentioned too i guess like how do we determine what's causing these issues uh to begin with and what's our and 
what is the most common things causing it with the people that we work with? Yeah. So in our space, especially stress is always going to be a main driver. And that's because the way I always illustrate it is this, we all physiologically, we all work the same, of course, genetics, and we have slight variances in like how fast we metabolize things or how well, you know, there's differences, but we're all designed the same for the most part. Okay. So if you took someone off the street and you expose them to a certain amount of stress, and then you took someone in our space and you expose them to all the same job, family relationship, all these stressors, and you beat them to death in the gym and you deprive them of nutrition. What makes us so special that, yeah, we eat better. We're probably a little more conscious of certain things, but what makes us design so much better that we're immune to these things? Cause we're not. So we had this idea and you guys have probably maybe used this term of allostatic load, which is just like an accumulation of all, all of these stressors over time. So that, so really what happens there that's driving issues is one is our nervous system, our nervous, we have our autonomic nervous system, par, you know, fight or flight, sympathetic, parasympathetic that controls the speed of motility through the gut. So all of those muscles and things that contract that move things through that can get slowed down if we're in a sympathetic state all the time. So of course, like digestive motility gets slowed down. Things are kind of sitting in there and fermenting and causing bacterial overgrowth. So we end up with the bacterial issues, maybe like acid reflux because, you know, we're getting a lot of churning and intra-abdominal pressure and splash up, right? So that's 100% going to be a driver. Of course, how much abuse someone can take is very individual. You know, some people can get away with a heck of a lot. Some people not so much. And then you start adding things like hormones into the mix. It's, you know, our sex hormones do have some bearing on speed of motility. Like if you look at a female during her menstrual cycle, do you know, like certain times of the menstrual cycle, she gets a little bloated and slowed down and constipated, right? Because we're having ebbs and flows and hormones. So when that system gets screwed up, of course, we may have some extra, extra layer of motility issue going on there. So drug drugs could be like PEDs and things could be an additional stressor per se, you know, like abuse of, especially like abuse of stimulants and things, but even like androgens, of course, in a female or even male would screw up some of those hormonal, you know, feedback loops. So that's a factor. Other factors would, would also be, uh, well, birth control. We would lump birth control into that for sure. Cause that's a, you know, synthetic hormone. So lump that in there. Absolutely. And the other thing about birth control is that nobody takes birth control for a month. You know what I mean? Like most of the people that I'm getting on hormonal birth control, if they're 35, they've been on it since they were like 15. Mm -hmm. So we're talking like years and years of compounding. And then you add in, then you add in nutrition. So the nutritional aspect is interesting because if you were to take somebody off the street that ate fast food three times a day, you would probably have you, well, you most likely would have a level of dysbiosis in there from poor nutrition and from like overfeeding. Right. But in us, we don't really have that so much because we can have, you know, we can get SIBO from an underfed state, you know, from like contest prep and coming out of contest prep, but we're really getting it. One is the, the stress component. Two is that a lot of the time we lack a lot of microbial diversity in the gut because we get in those restrictive states for so long that we're, you know, we're not feeding the good bacteria. We have lack of variety in the diet. 
we're eating like the same five things forever and ever. Um, and I get that a lot with people that have GI issues that they maybe have been trying to manage themselves. They've been doing things like low FODMAP and they're like, I can't eat this and this and this. So when they come to me, their box of foods is like this. I'm like, I get it because these things irritate you. But on the flip side of that, we have no diversity in our bacteria at all because our nutrition is so boxed in, you know? So you can really nutritionally, there's negatives on both aspects of it. I have an inter, a really interesting uh, perspective because I've actually been doing a, working with a lot of uh, GI issues in large male bodybuilders also, which is a different is they can still have the prep, like the prep issues and stuff for sure. But there, there's a different component to that too, because of all of the chronic feeding, mm-hmm. right? We experience that in females a little bit, but females are almost always, by the time they get to that point, they're afraid of eating and they've been trying to diet for so long. But what if I get a guy that comes in that's been, you know, hammering 6,000 calories for, you know, two years and he's super insulin resistant he's inflamed as hell and like all this stuff. Well, we're going to have some bacterial issues there. We're going to have, you know, in males, I get a lot more IBD issues, a lot more Crohn's colitis, inflammatory side of things, right? You know, blood in the stool, a lot of issues, you know, issues like that. So the, I guess the takeaway there is as bodybuilders, we don't really spend much time at homeostasis at all, right? Like we're doing something we're going, we're going like here, here all the time. Yeah, We're like way up here, way down here. That's why when you get, you know, you get done with prep, like once you get past, once everything kind of balances and you're not craving and stuff anymore, there's like a few months there where everything's feels so good. The appetite's good. You, the food tastes good, you know, you feeling good. And then eventually you're like, I don't want to eat anymore because you're past that point. Right. So we just don't really spend a lot of time in that, in that box. Yeah. Now, and it's, I mean, I'm literally in like what I would call a health or holding phase right now for that same reason, you know, you get done with prep. We don't go immediately into overfeeding a ton and a ton. It's like, let's chill for a while, manage health, get some blood work done, wait things out and then go into off season. And it's exactly why you don't compete over and over and over again. I mean, if you got a couple shows back to back, great, but you need, you need an off season with things like low FODMAP elimination diet and stuff. Would you say that they're, uh, they're more of a temporary thing? Like if somebody has an issue, you can implement a low FODMAP or elimination diet, resolve the issue at hand. But if you stay in that low diversity based diet for too long, now we might have a different issue, which is, uh, like really like creating deficiencies in your gut microbiome right. now. And then a different gut issue comes out cause you have no variety in the diet and you're kind of back to square one. So it's rather, rather than like, here's your diet forever. It's like, let's do this, fix the symptom, make sure it's gone. And then we're going to start reintroducing some of those foods to create diversity. Yeah, for sure. So those things all have utility. Of course, one, one benefit there is if I do have a client that comes in and they have, you know, they have a lot of sensitivities, they have, they have a lot of issues. It is a lot easier for me to standardize things. Yeah. At least at the beginning, because I can see the pattern and the trend. Like, I don't want all these variables moving around. And that's why it's difficult because sometimes these people come in from, they have poor relationships with food and they have a lot of issues in that realm, but it's almost easier for me to actually have them on a pretty set plan in the early phases of this, because otherwise it's kind of, it's kind of hard for me to tell 
what you know what's going on if we have like all these variables moving around, right? So that's that is one utility there. Two is we can at least temporarily alleviate some symptoms by using, you know, eliminating things that cause irritation. So if it's low FODMAP, like we're we're trying to reduce the amount of bacterial fermentation that's going on during, you know, during like a SIBO protocol, we may use something like that. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Or just literally just eliminating foods that they don't react well to. Now, the one thing that I, the one thing interesting about food sensitivities is anytime I get someone that comes in and they, they start rattling off all of these things they're intolerant to, there's almost always an underlying GI issue. It's like, you're not intolerant to 10 foods. It's, you're not. And, and it's not like we, it's not like I'm intolerant to pizza. Like I get an upset belly when I eat a large pizza. Well, no, duh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, I can't eat chicken. I can't eat potatoes. I can't eat like, we're talking like good, clean foods. So outside of them having an actual allergy, usually those sensitivities go away. Once we, you know, once we correct the GI issue and we, like you said, start re-implementing some diversity back into the diet. And we normally do that kind of slowly. You know, we normally will add, you know, one or two things and assess and one or two things and assess and just make sure and start to diversify that. I did a consult with a gentleman the other day and he had come to me for GI issues. He had not been able, he had not been able to eat a fruit or a vegetable for 12 years without chronic with like, without diarrhea and bloating. Now he was a bodybuilder. So of course he was just pretty much eating like meat and rice. That's all he could eat. So as you can imagine, there were definitely nutrient deficiencies and from that, of course. And there was no microbial diversity going on there at all. He had, he did have SIBO. So in his case, he had such severe intolerances that I, I couldn't really go in and just start giving him a bunch of stuff to try to expand on that right away because he just couldn't like we're talking it was so bad that he couldn't he couldn't function through the day so for him that is a case where i do need to go in and do and do some type of protocol like right from the beginning and get these and get this bacteria back in check and get his symptoms in check just so he feels okay right because when you feel better your stress goes down and your happiness increases. And now guess what? Everything else starts to work better. Yeah. So once we got him through that, I did a follow-up consult with him the other day. This wasn't like an ongoing coaching client. It was just like a couple one-off consults. And he's like, dude, I've been eating like four or five different types. He goes, I ate like 300 grams of blueberries the other day. And he was so excited. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, you know, that's a lot of blueberries. Yeah. And, and um, so he's been able to eat all this stuff. And so I talked to him a little bit. And he was going out of town on vacation and stuff. I was like, I want you to try, just try some stuff where he went to Italy because he was from, he was from Europe. I can't remember which country. And he went out and he had a pizza in Italy because naturally yeah, one would, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, I ate this pizza and I was fine. Right. And so it was interesting to see because this was someone that had not been able to eat outside of this box for a decade. And once we actually corrected that, and of course he had a, he had some other residual GI stuff going on as well. All of his sensitivities went away. It's crazy. And then now, now of course, if he were to go out, that's not a, 
that's not a pass. Like if he were to go out and eat pizza every day, of course he's going to yeah. develop, redevelop an issue, but he's not going to do that. There's some level of, you know, I do get people sometimes, especially gen pop or lifestyle clients. They're like, I want to do this so I can go back and do this. I'm like, eh. That's what caused the issue. Doesn't, <laughs> yeah. Like it doesn't work like that. Like we're going to have to have some level of permanency, you know, yeah. permanent uh, change here. But, but yeah, that's uh, it's a great point. And most food sensitivities, are just underlying GI issues unless you have an allergy to something, yeah. which you would probably know at a really young age, like if you had like a peanut allergy, right? right. Something like that. Yeah, I think that's good. And I think that um, it's it's one of those things too where uh, flexible dieting is great and we're proponents of it, but it also like demonized meal plans and standardizing <laughs> foods. And I think there's a lot of value in what you said, even for people who don't have gut issues. If somebody's coming in and they want to change their physique and there's just too many variables at hand to really know with like a precise eye, how, like, what are you actually consuming day to day so that we can dial in even just your calories and macros to go through a periodized fat loss approach? Like you need to standardize. So I'm, I'm the same way, even with people that just have, whether it's bad energy, they don't really know their maintenance or they think they do. And I don't think they're tracking accurately, anything like that. It's like, Hey, we're going to like, I want to standardize things for a few weeks to get going and like, see where you're actually at with things. Nine times out of 10, they all, they start seeing some results. They feel better. Their digestion improves their sleep improves. You're like, okay, like, sure. And I know we're not supposed to say clean food anymore, but like we cleaned up the diet and the clean food helped a lot. Sure. So, um, yeah. Now taking all this into consideration, like what, and we might have to have you back on soon, man, because one of the questions I really wanted to ask you was about the gut brain, uh, access, what that is, why that's important, how that probably could be a legit whole podcast. I think we could tie in the psychology of a client. <laughs> a lot with that, which would be really fun to talk about, but to keep this on focused on gut health and really like physique development to the, the last question I have based on everything we've talked about is why does this apply to a physique? If training stimulates muscle growth, calories in versus calories out determines fat loss, right? Like that's what people know. That's what research shows. Is this just a matter of if your digestion is on point, you're going to absorb nutrients better or, or I'm assuming not there's more to it, but like, how much deeper than that does it go? Like, what do people need to hear right now? If you're like an elevator pitch kind of thing and it's a really big elevator, so take your time. But like, what do people need to know to say like, this is why this is so important. If your real main goal is, is physique development, muscle growth, fat loss, um, whether you have a no gut issues and you would just want to avoid it and you want to enhance your physique, if you have a little bit of gut issues or if you have massive gut issues, how does this apply to the physique? Yeah, so there's a few, I'll give a few, a few main bullet points there. One is, one is sustainability. You know, generally, if you look at most competitors or most people that build a good physique over time, it takes a long time. So, of course, sustainability and long shelf life is super important. You know, if you feel like crap and you can't perform well and your cognitive function is suffering and et cetera, et cetera, you're likely to fall out of touch with the process. You're likely to not want to do these things anymore. You're likely to, you know, I've seen a lot of cases where bodybuilding screwed me up. I hate bodybuilding. I hate this. I hate that because they ran into issues, right? Whether it's GI health or hormones, it's just that they ran to a point where they weren't able to perform the way that they wanted. They, so yeah, thermodynamics still applies there. Of course, if they ate nothing, they would still lose weight, right? They're still going to lose weight, right? But of course, the aspects of performance and cognitive function and things have suffered so badly that they don't want to, 
they don't want to embark in this process anymore. So that's one thing, just from a sustainability aspect. Two is it's definitely going to it's it's definitely going to exacerbate a lot of those normal adaptations that we experience when we diet. So you know, normal things we would experience would be like you know lack of thyroid hormone conversion, you know, T4 to T3 conversion, loss of menstrual cycles, you know, things like that. It's going to probably expedite or ex- exacerbate the severity of those processes because it is a detox system. It is a system that can house a lot of inflammation. So those processes don't change. They just maybe happen a lot quicker, right? And they maybe happen to a more severe degree. So yes, again, I've never been somebody that as much as I'm into the space, I would never sit here and say that you couldn't create a calorie deficit because you absolutely could. At what cost? And how low are you going to have to go? You know, I'm not going to argue that because again, if you ate nothing or if you ate 400 calories a day or 500 calories, you're probably going to lose weight. Is it going to be favorable? Are you going to perform well? Are you going to be able to sustain training enough to stimulate muscle protein synthesis and maintain your muscle tissue? Like what is your physique going to look like? You know, that's where the trade-offs start to come in, right? And they get so burnt out and they're so tired and they, they're like, I can't do this. I cannot physically muster up the strength and the energy to even get deep enough into that deficit to even lose weight anymore. Right. So it's not that the deficit doesn't work. It's just that I can't do it. I mm-hmm. mentally cannot take myself to that place anymore because these adaptations have become so severe. The third thing would just be it definitely affects the way that you, the way that you, uh, look cosmetically, you know, if we're talking just from the aspect, like a great example would be, you know, final week before the show, what are some of the things we do a final week before the show? We generally lower activity level. We reduce training intensity. We we're you know, getting our feet up. We're doing all these things. What, well, what are we trying to accomplish? We're, we're lowering allostatic load. We're bringing our cortisol levels down. We're bringing our aldosterone levels down. We're moving water out. And then, of course, you know, we manipulate electrolytes and carbs and all those things. But you'll look better if you're not inflamed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like generally, generally, you're going to look better if you're not inflamed and you're partitioning nutrients correctly and your body's not stressed to the gills and your cortisol levels not three times over range. You could have the same body weight and the same level of body fat even potentially, but the way that that looks could vary. For sure. So, you know, I've seen it time and time again where, you know, we clean those things up and body weight maybe changes minimally, but they visibly look a heck of a lot better because you're not worn out looking, you're not inflamed anymore. So you, you look better. You know, you see a lot of, especially I mentioned bodybuilders, you know, you see this a lot as as the bodybuilders get bigger, you know, people are like, well, it's, it's the growth hormone, it's the insulin. It's like all these things. I'm like, 90% 90% of those guys have GI issues. Yeah. <laughs> like, dude, I've worked with, I, last year, 2022, one of my clients was, and I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning, one of my clients was, uh, he won the North American Championships. He was super heavyweight, open, and he won the overall there. He was super heavyweight, huge guy. Came out midsection, dead flat, like could pull it all the way in, can vacuum, can do all this stuff. When he came to me, he had Crohn's you know, he had Crohn's, he had all these things. I could have gotten him in that shape at a higher cost, but he visibly wouldn't have looked as sharp. His midsection wouldn't have looked as good. Yeah. So 
there's a lot to be said about that. You know, it's like, cool. All of my limbs are lean, but I'm like, my belly's bloated and my face is puffy. Yeah. It's not a good look. Yeah. Well, I, I got to imagine too, like, I mean, at the end of the day, when you have that level of fatigue and stress just globally, like, right, right. Systemically everywhere, your training intensity is not going to be the same throughout the year either. So, cause you're just, if, sure. if you look tired and fatigued, you feel tired and fatigued and your training's not gonna be the same sure. plain and simple, you know? Um, it's sure. the same reason why, like, as you get closer to contest day, you know, your training slowly dwindles away. It's harder to train. You're just fatigued, right? It's from a different reason. Your calories are really low, but like same point quickly, is there a direct link? Uh, just, I don't know if there's any research on this or anything, but a direct link between cortisol being elevated and digestive issues, digestive slowdown, um, more blood flow to the gut, maybe causing issues or not getting blood flow to the gut because when cortisol is up and adrenaline's high, maybe blood flow is going elsewhere. Is there anything that directly ties that or is it more just like based on what we know with the functions of these things, we would assume that? So funny enough, cortisol is actually anti-inflammatory, mm. interestingly enough. Mm -hmm. So cortisol, so we, a lot of people are familiar with cortisone, like hydrocortisone or cortisone yeah. shots. Cortisone converts to cortisol. It's, it's technically an anti-inflammatory hormone. Now, the issue there is if your cortisol is chronically elevated, you have to, you'd have to ask yourself why. So can you produce, are you so inflamed that that cortisol demand or that immune system demand is not able to keep up with that balance? Like, it's like my inflammation's here and I can't quite get, I can't meet it. You know, I can't meet it up here to bring it back down. So no, I wouldn't say that it's directly correlated in, in the sense that it's going to cause a GI issue, but it's like, the reason that it's elevated is probably causing a GI issue, right? Your, your, symp your sympathetic nervous system's flying high. So your motility slowed down. Like you said, you know, you may be allocating blood flow to other places. That's why part of rest and digest is we do need blood flow to go into the GI tract to help us with digestion process. So if we're not relaxed and we're not in a parasympathetic state, that process is compromised. So cortisol in and of itself is not a bad guy. It has a lot of uh, a lot of really helpful properties. We need it to train. We need it to be stimulated. We need it for inflammation. But if you're chronically elevated, then there's probably something else driving that that is causing a GI issue, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why it, with all this stuff and as a coach, it helps to know you got to kind of know you can't, you can't focus on one thing. You got to kind of know everything that's linked and synced together because it, it paints a bigger picture that you can work with, you know? Sure. Um, man, like I said, uh, especially with the gut specifically, it's, it's a topic that is continuing to be studied, researched, finding out more stuff. We still know so little. So I think it's just one of those topics that we could probably go on and on and on. Hence why you've done so much work around it, right? Cause it probably just keeps expanding. And, uh, yeah. I would love to have you back on to dive deeper into some of these aspects. I think each of them are so, so important, but, um, I also want you to just shout out, uh, where people can follow you, where people find you as we wrap up. Cause I know that you offer different types of education, uh, courses, webinars, seminars, content, all that stuff, diving into each of these in more depth. So for all the listeners who you got a lot out of this, you heard some things that maybe resonated with you or made you question some things going on with you or anything like that. Austin has a ton of content that he can provide you with to help answer those questions outside of what we just talked about today. So if you can real quick, man, just drop where they can find uh, your content, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. Sure. So the easiest, the easiest place is on my social media, my Instagram and my Facebook page. Um, I'm Austin Stout on Facebook, 
I am Austin ST number eight on Instagram. In my bio, there's a link tree. So the link tree will take you to, you know, take you to the other social media, take you to my YouTube channel. I'm not a YouTuber, but my YouTube is more of a storage platform where I put a lot of my video content on there. So there's a lot of short form video content and um, like longer form IG lives and podcasts and things on there. So that's a great place to start. And if you're interested in any services, my emails in my bio. So that if you want to reach me for any, if you're a coach, you want any educational services, classes, anything like that, anything new that's coming up, I'm always very diligent about posting it on my social media. So like any new classes or offerings, it's always there. So just give me a follow. If you follow me, I'm, I post like every day, so you'll see it. Yep. Yep. Awesome. I'm going to link that stuff in the description. I'll actually just link the different links in uh, from his link tree in here. We're also going to list out some of the tests that he mentioned and some of the other things. So you guys have the resources in the list of things that we talked about. Um, ready to go. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you leave us a five-star rating review, share it with a friend so they can get some value from this too. And then head over to Instagram and post a, a story screenshot and tag both myself and Austin. Our handles are in the description. We want to thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time.